Let's pray together. Lord, as we are here in your presence, we have much work to do this morning. And we say that we cannot accomplish it on our own, but we need the work of the Holy Spirit right now. You are the only one who can do this. And so, Lord, in this place, we acknowledge that our time to look at your word, to see who Jesus is, is a moment for us to continue in worship. Lord, we thank you for the work that you've already been doing in the service. And yet now, Lord, we say, speak now through your word, for your servants are listening. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You can go ahead and take a seat. Worship team, thank you for leading us this morning. Thank you so much um, for the work that you guys do. I want to encourage all of us, it's time to get to work. Let's open our Bible to Philippians chapter 2. We are in, I would say, I said this last week, we're at the beating heart of the book of Philippians. But if anything, we're going to be looking at the passage today that's like the summits of the summits. And so I feel, and I want to be careful in how I communicate this, I don't want to say it's a privilege to do this for you, as in to listen to my sermon, but to look at this passage. It's a privilege for us to be able to look at what we have in front of us this morning. But as you're turning there, here's something I want to point out to you. I posted this on Facebook this week, if you follow me. I was looking at an article from Christianity Today, and it had an article, it had an article entitled, Top Five Heresies Among American Evangelicals. It was a study that just came out this last Wednesday, and it was a survey between Christianity Today and Ligonier Ministries, and they surveyed 3,000 American evangelicals and asked them basic questions uh, about the Christian faith to see how they were, see how they lined up. And so what I want to do right now is I want to put some of these statements up on the screen for us. Please, for my sake, don't say true or false. Just keep it to yourself, okay? You'll see what I mean by, by asking you to do that in just a minute. Uh, but I want to put up some of these statements. And I'm going to tell you the percentage of American evangelicals who said yes to these statements. Let's put up the first one. It says this. True or false, Jesus is the first and greatest created being or being created by God. What percentage do you think? Well, 73% of American evangelicals said true to that statement. Okay? Let's put up the second one. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Of those surveyed, 43% said true. This is American evangelicals. Third one, Jesus isn't the only way to God. Total number, 56% of American evangelicals said true to that statement. And, and by the way, what we're talking about there is saying, like, whether it's through Islam, Mormonism, Judaism, the world's religions, um, you can get to God, and 56% said yes to that. Last one, this is on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being like the way the Father and the Son is. Of those surveyed, 57% said true. Now, I should tell you that if, this is why I didn't ask you to answer. Um, if you said true to any of those statements, um, technically in the history of uh, the church, you would be called 
a heretic. That's what, that's what it means to be someone who has fallen into heresy. The, basically, short history is in the early part of the church, the church fathers, where we call it the patristic period, had several get-togethers. We call them councils in which they decided um, amongst each other, we want to make sure that we're accurately representing scripture. So when we say, who is God? Who is he? Is it, do we serve three gods or one God? And so you've heard of the language that we serve one triune Lord, one God in three persons. And so if you ever heard of the Council of Nicaea, you heard of the Nicene Creed, Athanasian Creed, definition of Chalcedon, all these different uh, gatherings that came together to put these statements together to really hammer to the wall. When we talk about Jesus or we talk about God, who are we talking about? And so I would want to submit this to you from the beginning. I think, I've heard many Christians complain about the decline of American evangelicalism over the course, especially the last 20 years. I would say maybe the problem isn't so much out there, but it might have a little bit to do about what we're teaching. I should say this before saying anything else. 90% of those surveyed did say that they thought adultery was wrong in marriage, so at least thank goodness we're getting that one right, but we're getting Jesus wrong. That's quite serious, right? And so... To get Jesus wrong, man, you could get it wrong on baptism, you could get it wrong on understanding spiritual gifts, you could get it wrong on uh, squabbles that American evangelicals have on women in ministry, and you're still, still going to be in the kingdom of heaven, but you get Jesus wrong, something is deeply wrong with your soul. That's what we mean when we say someone is a heretic, okay? We have work to do to see who Jesus is properly. I think this is an area in Christianity amongst American evangelicals that we don't talk nearly enough about. We talk about Jesus, but we don't say who he is. Thank goodness scripture helps with this. And it gets four passages in particular. I just wanna name off a few of them. Maybe you've heard of these before. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So you have the Father, you have God, and then you have another who's called the word, who's distinct. It's like they're looking at one another, but yet this word is also God. Verse 14 goes on to say in John 1, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as the only Son from the Father. And so you go all the way down John 1, you see that the Word who becomes flesh is the Son. And so the Father and the Son are distinct persons, and yet they share the same divine nature. What about this one? Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so the one who becomes flesh, who is the son of the same nature as the father, creates everything and holds it, sustains it by the word of his power. Hebrews 1, let's keep going. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus says, if you have seen me, you've seen the father. You ought to think maybe like a face being imprinted into wax. And you see that, you see Jesus, you've seen the father. But then there's Philippians 2, and that's the last one. And it goes like this. It says, have the same mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus, or that is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of 
men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so the one who is the same form of God as God ends up on a cross. Thank goodness that's not the end of the story. It goes on, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, has bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. This passage has blessed me tremendously. This is why I've committed it to memory. My hope is, friends, that by the time we're done looking at this together, it'll bless you too. And so here's what I want to do just for our next few moments together. We're going to look at Philippians 2, 1 through 11, that whole paragraph right there. You'll notice, or you'll see this as we go on, you can really divide it right in half. The first part, 1 through 4, it's Paul's command to say to the church in Philippi, I want you to be unified in humility. Be unified, but the way it looks like is that you would have humility. And then the perfect example is that second part, 5 through 11, what some have called the ancient him. Maybe it precedes Paul, some have asked, and that talks about what we just quoted a moment ago, the example of humility in Jesus Christ. So we're looking at the command and the example. Let me read together. Let's look at verse 1 through 4. I'm going to read it. We'll dice it up and talk about it. Look at verse 1. Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so the first thing he says here is that since God has blessed you, you must be unified in humility. You notice that the basis, the way he starts out those first few verses, look at them again. You saw, see how he starts off and he lists several bases for our unity, the blessings, encouragement from Jesus, comfort from God's love, sharing of the same Holy Spirit, God's compassion and pity towards you. I really like this and I'll tell you why. Because I'm a guy who's been in church most of my life, in fact, my whole life. I've told you that before. And so I know what it's like to not always be in leadership and hear somebody else say, hey, would you be willing to serve? And so here's something I want to say to those of you who are elders, deacons. Uh, if you're a ministry area leader, there's 11 of you who oversee different ministry areas. Or if you find yourself asking other people to serve in the church, do you notice what Paul doesn't start with here? He doesn't say, do this. He starts with the blessing first. One commentator says, points this out, and he says, Paul is quick to first mention the blessing of the gospel before giving certain exhortations. If all you ever do is tell people what they're supposed to be doing, then they will get burned out. Hear me? You get burned out if all you're ever doing is asking people to do things. Remember, remind people of the blessings while giving them the imperatives. Here's something I'm convinced of, friends in church, that we can subtly communicate messages that we don't intend. And one of them can be that you are justified by works and not by grace. Because if you're only ever asking people, do this, do this, do this, I think you can communicate to newer Christians, even Christians who have been in church for a while, that the Christian faith is all about what I do for God, and it's not about what he has done for me. Tim Keller, uh, one, probably his most famous statement, if not one of his most famous statements, says, Religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. Religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. But the gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. 
I think of Neil Anderson wrote a book called The Bondage Breaker, uh, I think 20 plus years ago, and I just had this stuck in my mind. He says, I, I do not labor in the vineyard with the hope that God may one day accept me. God has already accepted me, and that's why I labor in the, vi- in the vineyard. And so obedience doesn't come before what Jesus has done. Look how he's blessed you, and then as a result of how he's blessed you, then you serve him. And so this is not an excuse, I think, to be spiritually fat and happy. This is not a reason to say, well, Jesus has saved me, so, okay, living the blessings, don't have to do anything. James is still in your Bible, and it says, faith without works is dead. You are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. It demonstrates itself in the Christian life. So let's get that order right, gospel and then action, what Christ has done, and then how we respond and live in freedom. And so if you have those blessings, friend, everything that God has given you by grace, Paul then says, I want you to be unified. And he gives three particular ways in how he describes that. He says, I want you to have the same mind. Be unified in love. Have the same spirit. The same spirit in there. I think we've mentioned this over the course of the last few weeks. He's just kind of sprinkled this in here. Do you realize that what binds you together to the other person in this room, for all of us who have called on the name of the Lord, what brings you and I together is not our different social standing, not whether you grew up in Huron or not. It's not your, your ethnicity. What binds us together first and foremost in this room is that we have the same spirit of the living God living within me that's also within you, that's also in the person next to you if they have called on the name of the Lord. You must have the same spirit within you to be a part of God's body. I think the second thing is, well, I know the second thing is that you would be unified in love. Now, something that has been really enjoyable. I've really enjoyed this. I told, told some of you about this a few weeks uh, or a few days ago, is that since I've been here, this is now my eighth Sunday here, I have definitely taken advantage of talking to people at the local grocery store or when I'm getting my hair cut, and I'll say, hey, I'm new in town. Can you tell me about the churches here? Tell me about what you think about different churches. Eventually, Bethesda will come up, and I'll say, Bethesda, tell me about Bethesda. And they'll have no idea who I am. So I'm really just stepping into that Aaron's naive thing, just tell me things right now. It's a lot of fun. And, and eventually, they'll start telling me about Bethesda. You should know, good things have been said. Um, but I want to ask you, how do you think Bethesda's reputation is in our community? Would other people say, yeah, when I show up to Bethesda, man, I don't go all the time, but when I do, it's just a really loving place. Man, it's just a place that has like, they're just bound together by the same spirit. Could they say the same thing about us that Paul says we're commanded to be? Just a question. But you notice, he also said that, says that you would have the same mind. Now, I don't think that having the same mind means that we're all robots in here and we think the same exact things. I enjoy my conversations um, with, with Ted Hogg and Dan Copeland and Wes, all, all these different guys where we get to sit down, talk about theology, talk about what God's doing in his church. And we don't think the same exact things, but we're iron that sharpens iron because others see, the other sees things that I haven't seen or I have seen things that they haven't seen. Being of the same mind, I think here what Paul is saying is that we get on the same page, we keep the main things the main things. Some of you know that I have gone to Tabor College, so I spent time in our southern district. I've been in the Pacific District out in California, and now I'm here in the central district. These are all different districts of our denomination, the United States Mennonite Brethren. In case you didn't know, that's what we're part of. And here's an observation of something that I have seen. Our denomination loves unity. 
But something I have observed is that sometimes unity can be prioritized at the expense of the truth. Man, we really just want to be on the same page, get along, love one another. And when differences come up, I found that those things can kind of be put to the side. Never mind the differences, focus on just being together. I think what happens when you do that over a long period of time, friends, is that you can end up having a fake unity because you're not grounded in the truth. I think of Adrian Rogers who says, it is better to be divided by the truth than to be united by error. You hear me? It's better to be divided by the truth than to be united by error. And so we must be of the same mind together. The last thing Paul then says is, he says, I want you to be grounded in humility. You look not only, here's a great definition of unity. It's right there in your Bible. You look not only to your own interests, but you look to the interests of others. Tim Keller, uh, once again, I like Tim Keller. Okay. Uh, Tim Keller in his book called Freedom, uh, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. We have several copies. Most of them have already been taken, uh, but we have some left in the foyer. Go get yourself one of them. He references C.S. Lewis, and he talks about what Lewis says when it comes to humility. And he quotes, he says, if we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking that they were humble. They would not always be telling us that they were a nobody. They wouldn't be telling us that they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying that they are a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. You ever have someone say when you compliment them, they, 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 say, uh, they say, oh, it's nothing. There's a part of them that's going, tell me more, tell me more, right? Oh, it's nothing, tell me more. And he says, that's a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more or less of myself, it is thinking about myself less. I don't really have to focus on myself, I can focus on you, I genuinely care about you. And what that actually shows is that I have humility. Matthew 6 says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be done in secret. And your father who sees it in secret will reward you. You are not so concerned about yourself, but you're concerned about the other. And so he says, Paul, you want to have unity? Great. Here's what it looks like. It must be grounded in humility. And the great example of this is the person of Jesus Christ. So I want to stop here and I want to say this before we keep going. We're going to get to verse 5 in just a minute. But I want to point this out. If we want to be unified, we must be humble towards one another. We must care about the needs of the other for the sake of our community. But I want you to know that I have this burden within me. Part of being a shepherd is that you protect the sheep and you drive out the wolves. Maybe you've been in other churches where you've seen people that have come in and just caused havoc because they care about establishing their own little kingdom. Here's what I want you to know. God is not honored by men and women in the church of all places who devour the sheep so that they can set up their own little kingdom. It does not honor him. But he is honored when we follow the example of his son. Look at verse 5, and let me show you what that looks like. We're going to go through verse 8. Have the same mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Let's actually stop right there. That's a good place to stop right there. So, you look at the example of Jesus. That's the second thing that we're looking at. But you look at how that nature of humility comes out. 
I think first through his humility of taking on a human nature and dying. You notice that in your Bible, if you have the ESV, it's going to say uh, that he didn't cling to this. He didn't count equality with God, something to be clinged or grasped to. Your NIV, I think, is going to say something to be used to his own advantage. If you have the King James, uh, King James says, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Maybe that sounds familiar. But I think what all these translations are getting at is this truth, that Jesus didn't use his own divine privileges to his own self-advantage. He didn't, he didn't use it as something to exploit. Totally different than the way you and I would be if we were God. If I were to ask you, what would you be like if you were God? What would you do? I actually don't have to ask you that question because I can look at human history and you can look at the pantheon of Greek gods, how we've made up our own gods. And have you noticed that those gods are just they're more intense versions of who we already are. They're just as capricious, just as prideful, but they have superpowers, right? And so if we were God, they have the same shortcomings, but more powers. If we were God, we might be prone to, you know, we want world domination. We would want galaxy domination, uh, not denomination, domination, universal domination. Man, we can't make people do what we want, but if I was God, man, I would change my spouse in a heartbeat. And I mean that Generally, not particularly to my own situation, just so you know. Um, but for every single one of us, there's part of what we would want to do to change others, change our situation. We would be so proud, I think. But the nature of perfect divine, the divine nature, is that it demonstrates itself in humility on a cross. It's not what you would expect. So it says he emptied himself by taking on the firm form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, we need to buckle in right here. Please, if you haven't been with me so far, be with me right here because we're, we're going to separate some truth from some, from some error here. What does it mean when Jesus uh, is emptied? When Paul says he emptied himself, you might be tempted to think that he empties himself of his divinity. Jesus comes down from heaven, he comes down to earth, and so he empties himself of his divinity by taking on a human nature. Did you notice that's not actually in your Bible? It doesn't say he gave up his divinity when he came down to earth. I've heard one guy put it this way, one pastor, he says, it's actually by taking on a human nature, it's the subtraction by addition. He doesn't lose his divinity by one iota when you read it in the Gospels, but he adds on a human nature. This is what we call, if you ever heard of this concept, the incarnation. God takes on flesh. And so maybe this, that might sound a little Heady. Let's, let's, I always love pictures because it helps me understand uh, better, I think, biblical realities. You remember the story in Matthew 17? You remember what happens there? Jesus is with his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they go up onto a mountain. And as they're on that mountain, it's called the Mount of Transfiguration. The curtain is pulled back, and you see Jesus. He's not just a teacher from Galilee, man, but he is God. And you see in all radiance who he truly is. And Elijah and Moses are next to him. And you see him for who he really is. Uh, Peter has no idea what to say. So he's like, uh, we should build some tents. And I love how God responds. He totally ignores what he says and just says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I love that picture. The teacher from Galilee is no mere man. He is God in the flesh. The reason why I take and I labor at such lengths to tell you this, that he is the God-man, one person, one Christ with two natures, humanity, ours, 
and divinity, his fathers, is because there's a teaching out there called the kenosis theory. And this is not just something heady. I want you to hear me on this because there are well-known pastors who are teaching this. You can go on YouTube, you can go anywhere, and you can see this. And it's called the kenosis theory. And the kenosis theory, it takes that word kenosis, emptying, and it essentially says this. That Jesus, when he came down from heaven and came down to earth, he gave up his divinity. And he was just a man. So when you read him in the Gospels, he's just a man. One pastor I've heard said, gone this far to say this, when, when as a man, he had to be born again, just like you and me, to receive the Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus is doing his miracles, he's not doing them as God, he's doing them as a man underneath the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the reason people argue this is then to say, look at this example, you being born again to do, can do the same miracles that Jesus did. Do you see the move that's happening there? And I just want to say this to you, friends. That is a false teaching that undermines the divinity of Christ when he is on earth. Jesus is fully God and man. It, man, it just messes up Jesus to elevate the capability of man. When God uses you, maybe you've prayed for someone, you've seen a miraculous thing happen. When God uses you, you're only the means. When, John, when Jesus heals someone, he is the source. When Christ on earth ushers in his kingdom through miracles, he does it as God because he's divine and he shares the same nature as his father and as the spirit. This is no mere man. Gregory of Nazianzus, I think, helps us understand even further this kind of back and forth. He's one of the church fathers, Cappadocian fathers, lived a long time ago. And he talks about this back and forth between humanity and divinity in Jesus. Just watch this. Just take this in. He hungered, and yet he fed thousands. He is indeed living heavenly bread. He thirsted, and yet he exclaimed, whoever thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Indeed, he promised that believers would become fountains. He was tired, and yet the rest of the weary and, and, and the burden he took on. He was overcome by heavy sleep, and yet he goes lightly over the sea, rebukes the winds, and relieves the, the drowning Peter. He pays the tax but he uses a fish to do it. He, indeed, he is the emperor over all those who demand the tax. He is called a Samaritan, demonically possessed, but he rescues the man who came down from Jerusalem and fell among thieves. Yes, he is recognized by demons, drives out demons, drowns deep a legion of spirits, and sees this prince of demons falling like lightning. He is stoned, but he isn't hit. He prays, and yet he hears prayer. He weeps, but he puts an end to weeping. He asks where Lazarus is laid, he was a man, but he raises Lazarus from the dead. He was God. He is sold and cheap was the price, 30 pieces of silver. And yet he buys back the world at the mighty cost of his own blood. A sheep he is led to the slaughter. Yet as the shepherd, he shepherds Israel. And now the whole world as well. A lamb he is dumb, but as the word of God, he proclaims the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. He is weakened and wounded, but yet he cures every disease and every weakness. He is brought up to the tree and nailed to it, and yet by the tree of life, he restores us. He saves even the thief crucified with him. He wraps all the visible world in darkness. He has given vinegar to drink, gall to eat. And who is he? He is the one who turns water into wine, who takes away the taste of bitterness, who is all sweet and desire. He surrenders his life, but he takes his life up again and lays it down whenever he wants to. Yes, the veil is rent, for the things of heaven are being revealed. Rocks split, dead men have an earlier awakening, and he dies, but he vivifies. And by death, he destroys death. He is buried, but he rises again. And he goes down to Hades, 
but he leads the souls up and he ascends to heaven and he will come to judge the quick and the dead. This is who Jesus is. He is both man and yet he is also God for us. Man, he is not just man with God with skin on. Give me a freaking break. He is not just God with skin on. He has he laughs, he cries, he feels pains, he gets tired, he is hungry. He is really God, but he's really man. And if he is this, this is not just theology, but it is theology for you. And so what kind of hope do we have when our administrative assistant has been unconscious since Monday? What do we have when, when our wanted director, his wife, has emergency surgery on Tuesday? What hope do we have? We have the God who has taken on flesh, put his two feet in the dirt, understands sickness, and he knows what we goes, go through. So no one in here can ever say, God doesn't understand me. He doesn't, he doesn't know me. He doesn't know what I've gone through. We have the one who has taken on flesh for us. What a God we can go to this morning. He has taken on our humanity for us. He's taken it to the Father. And if that isn't enough, perhaps you're doubting him this morning. What I want you to know is this. Hebrews 7 says this, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And since he always lives to make intercession for him. Do you know that you may have been doubting him while we've been worshiping through singing and looking at God's word. But while you've been doubting him this morning, Jesus has been praying for you. Who are we that he's praying for us right now as I'm preaching? Have you thought of that? He humbles himself by, taking, by being obedient to the point of death, even dying on a cross. Martin Luther talked about this, and he said, this is the joyous exchange. He gets death, I get life. He is bound so that I could be freed. He was betrayed so that I could be accepted. He was declared guilty so that I could be declared righteous. And so he is the man born so that he might die. Who are we that he would do this for us? And he note that, he does all of this, he dies, but who takes center stage in verse 9? It's his father. Do you see that? Verse 9. Look with me just a little bit more. It's his father. He gives him the name that is above every single name. What is that name? The Lord. So I want to put this up on the screen. Uh, go to the next slide if you would. Good. Go to the next slide after that. Doing great. Okay, so when Jesus is declared to be the Lord... There's something that is happening here that is not just merely a name, like he's the boss, right? That is true, but it's so much more. When the Father says that Jesus is Lord, here's what I think we need to understand, a little bit of Hebrew here. Yahweh is the personal name that God reveals himself to be. When you look at the book of Exodus, and Moses is at the burning bush, and, and, and what happens? God reveals himself, and he says, my name is Yahweh. He says, I am who I am. But when the Hebrews would come across that word Yahweh, it was so holy, so precious, so majestic, they, they couldn't even bring themselves to pronounce it. So they, they had another word, a substitute word. You'll see this whenever you read your Bible in the Old Testament, in case you didn't know this, capital L-O-R-D, talking about Yahweh there. And so they would use another word and they would say Adonai, and that means Lord. And so whenever you would come across that in the text, you would see Yahweh and you'd, you would go Adonai. Well, later on, your Bible in the Old Testament, in case you didn't know this, it's, it's, it's from the Hebrew, uh, but it was later translated uh, into a text called the Septuagint, the Greek uh, version of the Old Testament. And so the word they used in Greek was the word kurios. 
follow me, that same word is what you have in your Bible right here in verse 11. And so when Paul says that the Father declares that Jesus is kurios, he's associating Jesus with Israel's Old Testament God, Yahweh, who is the New Testament God and the person of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the being of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is being associated with Israel's God. He is divine fully. But he is the Lord, and he is the Lord and no one else is, not even Caesar. Someone might say, Pastor, please don't get too political. But could you think of a more political statement in the ancient world than to say, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not? What an affront to those in Philippi, the pagans around them, that the Philippians were preaching. The good news, I think, is this for us. The good news is that it does not matter for the church in Philippi or the church at Bethesda in the 21st century. It does not matter who the president is. It does not matter who the governor is. It does not matter who the mayor is. It doesn't matter who your boss is. None of them are the Lord. Jesus himself reserves that title. Jesus alone is the Lord. We ought to fear not the one who can destroy the body, but the one who owns both the soul and the body, and the one who will come to judge the living and the dead and wipe away every tear and make all wrongs right. This is Jesus the Lord. And we are told that every knee is going to bow one day and every tongue is going to confess this. You know what that means by every? That means everyone. That means all of us. You will either willingly bow and say that Jesus is Lord or you will be made to bow at the end of all things. That Jesus is Lord. And this declaration is going to bring the Father glory. And so this plan of condescension, incarnation, death, resurrection, and exaltation. This is who Jesus is for us. And so here's what my hope is, is that you would see all of this and go, who am I that he would do this for me? I keep using those two words. And this is the last thing, that you would see that he's accomplished this, not just to bring the Father glory, but he's done it for you. And this is where the grace comes in. We did nothing to deserve this. There's nothing inherently within you that deserves this grace. Edwards puts it this way. He says, the only thing that you have contributed to your salvation is a sin that made it necessary for Jesus to go on the cross on your behalf. I was not looking for him when he found me, and I have done nothing worthy for him to continue sustaining me and staying with me. He died, he resurrected, and he will come back for me. And if you want to take this to an even higher altitude of how much we don't deserve this, and then go, but you don't know what I did last night. You don't know what I did this last week. You don't know how things have been falling apart. I did it again. I think Jesus says to every single one of us, the evidence of his mercy toward you is not your life and what you have done, but it's his life and what he has done for you. These words on the page don't get wiped off based on what you did last week. They are still true. God's actions for you are not based on how you feel or what you have done, but on who he is. There is still no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think there's a part of us that ought to go, who am I? A man of unclean lips, that he would do all of this for me, and he still chooses me. So we say all of these things, then we have to go, okay, what am I gonna do? What, what should I do? And I think this is where we'll, we'll end here. If he has been humiliated for us, how should we live in humility towards others and for him? I think the first thing is, we look at unity that we're called to in the church. 
you know I'm from Texas, so here's your Texas illustration. You ready? Here we go. Okay. Alamo. Do we know the Alamo in here? Do we know that? Okay. I'm getting your heads bobbing. Good. Okay. We got the Alamo. I heard a pastor recently say this. He said, the Alamo started as a church. It ended up as a battlefield, and now it's a museum. There's a lot of churches that are going the same way. Started as a church, ended up as a battlefield, and now it's a museum. My hope for you is that you would not think that just because Bethesda is 79, going on 80 years old, that she will continue to be here another 10, 20 years. It is hubris to think otherwise. You cannot be evangelistic and missionally minded towards others out there unless we've got our own home together in here. And you can't be unified, I think, if there's a spirit of self-exaltation in our midst. I've told some of you some of the things that I've encountered in, in my life and ministry up until this point. And you should know that I've seen people lose their jobs in church. I've seen people be incredibly hurt. I talked to someone this last week who says he was talking about like church as if it was like breaking up with a boyfriend and can't, and can't have trust and has trust issues and going to a new church now. I've seen people... I've seen people so concerned with trying to build their own little kingdom, fulfill their own ministry ideas, and churches have declined. I'm convinced of this, that as we talked about last week about the opposition from the world that we face out there, that's not really even our real problem. Our real problem is that we don't look in the mirror often enough and say, Lord, how do you want to humble me? How do you want to change me? How do you want to transform me so that I wouldn't be the kind of person who builds my own little kingdom in the midst of your kingdom? How do you want to do this in my life, Lord? No humility, friends, no, humi uh, no humility, no unity, and I think eventually your lampstand ends up getting snuffed out. I am convinced, and I've told you this before, that we do not need another church growth strategy. We need the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Instead of blaming the culture out there for the decline of church membership in evangelical churches, maybe we ought to look in the mirror more and say, Lord, how, how, what do you want to do right here? And maybe, I can't help myself, I have to say this. Maybe there's someone in here who goes, man, I know who should be at church today. And I want to say, if you are thinking that right now, I'm talking to you particularly. If you're the kind of person that's going, yeah, I know other people who need to be humbled. I think this message is actually for you. That you would be convicted and go, Maybe I shouldn't be looking at others and pointing the finger at them, but I should be pointing it at me. Let us look to the self-example, self-sacrificial example of Christ and live accordingly. And then lastly, let's look at our own relationships. Consider how the true humility of Jesus ought to change how you talk to others. I have friendships that have stood the test of time over being over a long distance. We used to be close to one another, but now we're separate from one another. I have friends like that. You know how those friendships have lasted? It's because I genuinely care about what's going on in the life of the other. What's actually happening with their life? When you talk to other people, are you so dialed up to talk about what's going on in your life? Or have you thought to say, how can I pray for you? What's going on with you? Considering others' needs as more important than your own. I think this is an otherworldly freedom that we have when we can let go and then say, what's going on with you? And so my prayer for all of us would be this, that we would ask the Lord and say, Lord, how do you want to humble me so that I can be a blessing to others? And then go, ah, thank you for the blessing of Jesus because he gives me the power to be able to do so. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. 
if you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.